we are continuing our Good News Apocalypse series. We've been journeying through the book of Revelation, taking a number of weeks to do so. Uh, and it has taken a significant amount of time because it's a significantly long book. And it's not an easy book for us in our context to understand because it was written 2,000 years ago in, in language and metaphors that uh, reflected the time. And uh, for us, we have to do a lot of work to actually understand what these symbols are referring to. Uh, and so Christians for centuries have really not dealt with the book or read the book or trying to avoid the book. And I spent uh, most of the years of my life like, I don't understand, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, yet I found that whenever things got a little bit crazy and sideways in our world, it's the book that I would hear lots of references. People would say, well, you know, this is happening because this is what it says in Revelation and this is what it says in Revelation. And there's conflicting ideas and opinions and uh, it seemed like people were using the book to political agendas or ideas or desires. Uh, and so a number of years ago, I, I just decided, well, I want to kind of understand this book for myself and kind of dig into what it's, what it's talking about. Uh, and as we dig into the book and we seek to understand it in its context, in its historical context, uh, I recognize, and I think we recognize as we've gone through the book, that the word that was given in the first century is so timely for today, uh, but not, not often for the reasons that we think, not because it's some uh, newspaper that was written 2,000 years ago predicting the future, it was a crystal ball, but because it was written to a people that were living in the culture of the Roman Empire, trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a very volatile, crazy, uh, political, and militaristic world. They were trying to worship and follow Jesus in a time when people said that uh, you couldn't, or that at least you had to worship Caesar as well as worship Jesus. And the Christian church was struggling to figure out how do we be faithful to Jesus in the context that we are. And, and so I think that it has a lot of uh, encouragement uh, and warning for us today in how we live our lives uh, in a world that equally feels crazy, to be honest. Um, and so it was written in the first century to the church uh, there. It was written particularly to seven different churches, and we see that at the very beginning who the churches were, were addressed to. And so we have to keep that in mind as we read the whole book, that this was who the book was written to. Uh, and the majority of Revelation is actually meant to encourage the church between the first and second coming of Jesus. This was the context in which John, who was writing it to the churches that he had a pastoral influence over, that was the motivation why he was writing it. And so he wrote it to them, encouraging them to remain faithful because Jesus had died, was resurrected, and was said he was going to come back, and they were waiting in the in-between between the first and second coming of Jesus. And the majority of the book of Revelation is referring to this time period between the first and second coming of Jesus. And so, likewise, we also, like the first church, are in between the first and second coming of Jesus, when Jesus returns and sets everything right and comes in righteousness and love and justice and restores all things. Uh, this is where we're getting to as we come to the end of the book. Uh, we start to see a picture of the future. We start to see a picture of what is going to happen. And again, as we've seen throughout the book, that even though we look at the Revelation or the Apocalypse, we think it's bad news, but it's actually very good news, because apocalypse just simply means pulling back the curtain, or unveiling what isn't readily seen uh, to our eyes. And so Jesus is giving John this apocalypse. He's pulling back the curtain, allowing John to see what is really going on behind the scenes, 
What he sees with his physical eyes is Rome is dominating. It looks like the church is losing and that people that are choosing to worship Jesus um, and and are convinced that Jesus is king seems like Jesus is less than king than Caesar because Caesar seems to be winning. And Jesus says, hold on, I'm going to pull back the curtain. This is actually not the reality of what's going on. Let me understand. Let me help you understand what's going on. Let me help you understand the spiritual realities that are impacting the world in which you live in. And those realities are the same uh, today as well. And so with that in mind, we, we kind of come to the, I would say, the, the last stretch of the book of Revelation. And as we continue to make our way through the last book of the Bible, um, we're going to look at the opening scene uh, in a second. But before, before I do that, I actually just wanted to highlight some resources because I did this at the beginning of the series, and the series has been so long, and I had somebody say, you know, you should write a book on that series. I had a couple people say, say that to me, and I said, uh, I can't because the book's already been written. I, uh, th- this is not my, my own content, and so j- just as a heads up, these are some of the resources if you're interested in di- doing a a deeper dive into Revelation. Probably for most of you, like, this was enough. Uh, but there you go. Uh, you, can, you can take a deep dive there. Uh, some, some notable books. Daryl Johnson, I haven't given him enough credit. I did give him credit at the beginning, but we've been using his resources as a framework for where, where we've gone with the series. And so we're uh, indebted to him. Um, the, the book by Bruce Metzger is a good one. The Coaster book we've used actually quite a bit. Uh, Richard Bauckham's book uh, is kind of a resource that most of those other commentaries refer to. It's, he's a pretty authoritative scholar on the book of Revelation. Um, lots of good stuff in there. So you can take a picture of it. I can send you that stuff if you want to. Um, but I just want to make sure I'm not taking credit uh, for content that I didn't, didn't originally come from me. So that's where we've been drawing it from. Okay, so as we continue, like I said, we're going to Go through the last book of the Bible, we're we're on to the final act, and we're seeing one this morning of the final act of uh, the book of Revelation. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you are able, uh, for the reading of God's word as we finish out chapter 19. It says, then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on a white horse. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from the winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on, his, on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who had worshipped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophets were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding on the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Good morning. Um, 
You guys can have a seat. This is the reading of God's Word. So, again, we come across a a text that is full of imagery and metaphor, uh, and I want to remind us again that uh, what Eugene Peterson said, which I think is so true, is that we don't read anything new in the last book of the Bible that we hadn't read somewhere else already in the Bible. And so the, the revelation is really telling us not something new, but it's telling us the same thing, the same truth that should anchor us in a new kind of way. Um, and so if we recognize, if we go back to a 10,000-foot view of the whole book here for a second, we are entering, like I said, the fourth act, and each act has been opened up with the word open. It's a significant word in the book of uh, Revelation. And so every time this word comes, there's a new act or a new drama that happens as the drama is opened up and the heavens are opened up. And so the heavens opened up and then John sees something new that was different than something that was before. Uh, And so uh, we are on 1911, chapter 19, verse 11, the final opening, the final act a new group of metaphors and images that we're walking into. Uh, So it says, then I saw heaven opened. And there's actually a word there that is not in the translation that we've been reading from. And in other translations, it's translated as behold. And this is uh, sometimes misleading because we think it just means to look, but it, uh, to simply open our eyes. But it's a commandment. It's not just like, hey, it's, check it out. Uh, this is actually a commandment to open your eyes. So Jesus comes with a commandment to John to open his eyes. I saw heaven and behold, look, John. The whole of the last book of the Bible is built around this whole idea of open and look. The heavens are opening and then we're invited to look. The heavens are opening and we're invited to look. This commandment is super important. It's the second most frequent commandment in the book of Revelation. The, the first most frequent commandment is the commandment, do not be afraid. And these commandments are linked together because how we don't be afraid is by looking. In fact, I would say how we are afraid is by looking. And what we look at determines the state of fear or joy or peace in which we live. And so what are we focusing on? When the world is going crazy and chaotic, we're not sure what, which way is up and which way is down. Where do we set our eyes? Where do we look? And, and Jesus, in some ways, is like taking John's face and he's like, look, like, look at this, John. Stop looking at this, because this is just causing you fear and anxiety. But look at this. I'm opening up the heavens. I want you to see this. Would you look at it? And so John is looking where Jesus is telling him to look, because when we look where Jesus tells us to look, we don't need to be afraid. We can can obey the most frequent command to not be afraid if we obey the second most frequent command, which is to look. And what we choose to focus on will determine the level of peace or fear in which we live in, And Jesus tells us to focus on what he's showing us in the book of Revelation. And what's helpful when we think about that is we go all the way back to the first open, the first act, the first scene in chapter 4, verse 1, the first time that the heavens are open and John looks in, he sees an important scene. And that scene, and when we talked about it, I said, this is the most important scene in the book of Revelation because this scene helps us understand the whole book properly. It's the most important image. And so there was a scroll, and the scroll represented uh, the plans of God in history. And uh, John was wondering about what God's plan is, because he was looking around, and the church was suffering, and it looked like Jesus was losing, and that evil was winning. 
And uh, he was begging God and looking to God, God, what are you going to do? And there was the scroll, his plan for history. And then he, was, he saw that there was no one that was able to open the scroll. And if you remember, it says that John wept bitterly. He wept bitterly because he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do in the world that he was li- living in. And then Jesus shows up. And the text says this. It says, one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, again, look. The lion of the tribe of uh, Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John actually heard a lion. He hears this roar. And then John is told to look. And when he looks, what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And we said that this is the most important image for us to understand the book of Revelation. Because many people look to Revelation they think, it's going to come across like a lion, that God's going to, going to have this uh, victorious, and we're going to talk about the end, we're going to talk about Armageddon in a second, but we expect that God's going to show up like this lion, and when John looks, he sees that God shows up like a lamb, and it's not just a lamb, it's a slaughtered lamb. It's a slaughtered lamb because the lamb uh, represents Jesus, who was slaughtered on the cross, who died for our sins, who was resurrected three days later. And John sees that the victory of Jesus was not, didn't come in a lion-like way. It actually came in the lamb-like way. And this is how God operates and how God actually brought victory over evil and sin. And so with that in mind as a framework, what we looked at in the first window, let's go back to the last window. Um, and it says, I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was faithful and true, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were flames of fire, and his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one could understand except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. And so what does John see when he's told to look? So he looks, and he sees, first of all, he sees a person. He sees a person. He sees the person of Jesus. And this is why the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse of Jesus, about Jesus, This is all about Jesus. Every time John is told to look, every time the heavens open, he sees another picture of the supremacy of who Jesus is. That God has actually done something in history in and through Jesus. And so he sees Jesus, and Jesus is on a white horse. And so so John sees that Jesus is a warrior, This is the image of a warrior being on a white horse. The lamb who was slain now presents himself as a great warrior sitting on a horse. The bridegroom, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, presents himself as the great warrior, as the divine warrior. When someone was declaring peace, they rode in on a a donkey. And so if you're familiar with Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, uh, and he came in peace. And now we see in Revelation, he shows up on a horse, which is a war-like image. He rides in on a horse. And the event that is culminating, that is happening here, is what is often referred to Armageddon. How many of you guys have heard uh, the word Armageddon before? It's in pop culture. We kind of know this word as like this cataclysmic, cosmic war that is going to end history as we know it. This is the war that people talk about, make paintings about, write songs about. People have thought that Armageddon was this war that is going to end the world as we know it. And many Christians, many followers of Jesus, um, 
perpetuate that type of thinking. But the term Armageddon actually only appears once in the book of Revelation, and it doesn't appear here, but it appears in chapter 16, where it says, and the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and the armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. And so what we see in Revelation 19 is, again, this gathering of the kings of the earth coming together for a war. And so we've been, we've been anticipating this war. The, the tension's been building as we've been going through the book. And as we've gone through the, the text and we've looked at the context and we recognize that this apocalypse is actually good news and it's better than we think, I think many of us have, are assuming we're waiting for you know, it to finally drop, that Armageddon has yet to happen. Yeah, it sounds good news. It's good news. It's good news. But we know like, eventually it's going to get... There's going to be this cataclysmic moment, right? And so, yes, Jesus shows up on a white horse as all those who are opposing him gather to make more with him, war with him. But there's one problem. There's one problem with the picture of, that we have of Armageddon is that when we look at the actual text of Revelation, the battle of Armageddon never happens. It never happens. I mean, we think it happens. People tell us it happens. And if we avoid the book of Revelation because we don't understand it, we might think, oh, I'll just trust you that it happens. It actually never happens. Jesus does not show up to fight a war. Yes, he comes with what John calls the armies of heaven. And yes, the beasts and the kings of the earth all gather together to wage war against him. The beast, the dragon-manipulated power, the, the, the dragon-manipulated religious power under the manipulation of the dragon are coming together to wage war against Jesus. The kings of the earth, and in Revelation, this always refers to kings and queens who reject the rule of God, are coming together to fight God. And yes, John says they assemble to make war, but the war is never fought. And in fact, if you look at the word, it says the kings of the earth and their armies gather together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, but the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. It's really anticlimactic. The whole book is anticlimactic in this sense. If you're hoping for a warrior, you're going to be disappointed. They gather for a war, and then Jesus shows up, and it just says he captures the beast. That's kind of it. And the war never happens for a couple of reasons. First reason is that Jesus simply shows up and wields his sword, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but his sword is his mouth. His sword is what he speaks. This is how authoritative and how powerful Jesus is. He just speaks. He's a very powerful warrior, but he does not battle the way that we battle. He does not battle the way the dragon battles. The second reason the war is never fought is that it doesn't need to be fought. And it doesn't need to be fought because the war was fought a couple of thousand years ago on Good Friday, which is why we call Good Friday Good Friday. The battle of the world was fought and won. The real Armageddon was won in AD 30 when Jesus went to the cross. This is why missionary Amy Carmichael regularly said and encouraged other missionaries by saying, we work not toward the victory, but from the victory. All of the Christian life, all of following Jesus is not working towards a victory that's yet to come. It's working from a victory that has already happened. This is the good news. Jesus comes now, as you see at the end of Revelation in his second coming, he now comes now to bring the full realization of the victory that he already won on the cross. He, he comes to implement the victory that already happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. 
And we seem to miss this. We seem not to understand this. Um, and a, quite a number of years ago, there was this, this quote that came out with the, from a pastor. And he was concerned that people were painting Jesus as this, he, he was being too, he was too peaceful. And, uh, and so he responded, but he responded this way. He said, some emergent types want to recast Jesus as a limp wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and committed to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. I fear some are becoming more cultural than Christian. Without a big Jesus who has authority and hates sin as revealed in the Bible, we will have less and less Christians. So this is a quote from a number of years ago. Um, and, and I think, by and large, represents a view that many followers of Jesus have about Jesus and how they think things ought to end. And I just want to look at the text with this quote in mind and talk about simply why that quote is wrong. First of all, Jesus shows up on the scene on the white horse, and he's described as being faithful and true. He's faithful and true. So faithful throughout his whole earthly ministry, we know that he didn't do anything without the Father telling him what to do. We know that he lived a life without sin. We know that he was faithful to his father's purposes. We know that when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he didn't want to go to the cross, he was praying, God, take this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Even in his most excruciating moments, he was faithful. He never detoured from, deterred from the, the call that God uh, had for him. Even when he, um, sorry, he was uh, referred to also here as true. So he's faithful. God's call on his life, but he's also true. And the true here is not just, it's not intellectual truth, it's genuine truth. That's, that's what the word means, that he's genuine, that he's the real deal, that Jesus is true, truly God, truly human, fully God, fully human. When we look at Jesus, we actually see most fully what God is like. He's true. When we look at Jesus, we see most fully what humanity was intended to be. This is why the, this miracle of Jesus being both God and human is so important because we, we have a revelation of what God is like and we also have a revelation of who we are to be, who we're to emulate. And so when we look at Jesus, we see what real humanity is and Jesus shows up and he is faithful and true and God is not going to act in a way that is different than the way that he's already been acting. We see that on his head were many crowns and crowns, are symbols of victory. They're, um, they're, they're symbols of victory throughout the book of Revelation. If you remember in Revelation 12, the dragon had seven heads on seven crowns on seven heads. And then the beast also had uh, ten crowns on seven heads. But Jesus has many, there's an unnumbered amount of crowns all on one head. And so this kind of gives us this picture of the cosmic authority, the timeless authority of Jesus, that there aren't different kind of representations of God throughout history. There's one head. There's one head, Jesus. There's one 
Son in the Trinity, Jesus, that he was there in the beginning, that he is there in the end, that he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. We've talked about that at the beginning of this series. That there's never been a time that Jesus has not been actually in authority, that God has always been in control, that, that everything that happens in some way is under him. And so all the victories are under one head. And then we see that a name was written on him that no one could understand except himself. So what is this about? Names in the Bible reveal something about a person's nature and character. If you know a person's name, you know something about their identity and their destiny. In fact, when I used to run uh, youth ministry, we had a student leadership thing and we, uh, that we did before schools on Friday mornings, and we gathered with those students, and we did this fun exercise one time of like looking into our names, trying to understand each other's, you know, the name, the meaning of the name, the destiny that each of us had on it, and my, my name means God's gift, which is awesome. Um, and then we looked at other people's names, and you know, it's like Ray of Joy, and like all these other things, and then uh, we had a kid named Brendan, and his name meant stinky hair. Uh, I was like, I guess that's just destiny, buddy. You're a smelly teenager for life. But, uh, and, but in all seriousness, names throughout the biblical account had uh, purpose and meaning. They, they talk more so than we do today about somebody's destiny, about what somebody was being called to. And here we see that Jesus has a name that no one knows except himself. And that tells us that although we already know so much about Jesus... Although we already know him by many names, we still do not know the full picture of who Jesus is. That there is a name, that there is characteristics, that there is majesty, that there is glory, that there is beauty about Jesus that we don't even know yet that is going to be revealed when he returns. This is exciting to me. And so there's a name that he has that no one understands except himself. There's a mystery, even though we know so much about him, there's still a mystery to him. And his title was the Word of God. Literally, the Logos of God. The Greek word is Logos, and this is the same word that John uses in the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Logos, the Word, became flesh and made his home among us. And John tells us, in the Gospel of John, that Jesus was the Word of God, that Jesus, and that Logos basically means the logic, the self-expression of God, that Jesus was God's self-expression that was made known to us, and he made his home among us. And so when we see this rider on the horse, this is God on the horse. This is God on the horse. God's logos, God's self-expression on the horse. And no wonder the battle isn't won because God doesn't have an equal. It's not like God has to wrestle this victory out, like God is God. Who or what can stand against the logos, the word? He is king of kings and lord of lords. And we say this often in church, but we need to... Just be reminded about how big this is. Jesus of Nazareth is king over every king and queen we could name. Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of every other Lord in history. Jesus is sovereign over every other mayor, over every other premier, over every other prime minister or president. There's nobody that you can name in all of history that Jesus is not over. That's what we see over and over again in the book of Revelation. 
So let's look at three critical observations for understanding this text and why that misinformed uh, pastor uh, misunderstood the text. The three critical observations that were missed. First of all, the armies of God. The armies of heaven, we see, are dressed in the finest of pure white linen. And so we have to recognize that the army of God shows up not in military uniform. They don't show up with weapons. They don't show up in military attire. They show up clothed in linen. And we've already looked at the imagery of linen in this series. But again, we saw that the bride that we looked at two weeks ago, uh, that was going to marry the bridegroom, Jesus, was clothed in linen. And so these people are the bride of Christ. We also saw that priests were clothed in linen. And so the army is literally made up of priests. And priests had two roles. They, they had a role to intercede for the world and to bless the world. This was the role of priests, to intercede and to bless. And so the army of God shows up not with military attire. The army of God shows up with the mandate throughout history to bless and to intercede. Priests represented God to people and represented people to God. And so what God was like, they would try and be like that to others. And then when people were hurting, they would lift them in prayer back to God. This was the role of the priest. And so God's people are called to this priestly role. We're not called to pick up weapons and fight a battle. We are called to intercede, to pray on behalf of other people, to pray for our world, and then to be like Jesus to our world. The armies of heaven showed up, not with military attire, but with priestly garments. And then when we look at the robe of Jesus, the next thing we need to observe is that he wore a robe that was dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. Dipped in blood. The king's, this is a king's robe, and this king's robe is dipped in blood. But the question we should be asking is whose blood is it dipped in? This is the question of the book of Revelation. Whose blood? From all we read in the last book of the Bible, from all we read in the rest of the New Testament, the answer is clear that the rider on the horse is dripping and dipped in his own blood. He's not coming to make someone bleed. That's not why he's coming. All the bleeding that needs to be done has already been done. And this is why, if you notice, he shows up to the Armageddon scene with blood already on his robe. He didn't walk away from the scene with blood on his robe. He came to the scene with blood on his robe because he was crucified. He bled and he died for us. So this is the Jesus that shows up not to make someone bleed, but because he had already bled himself. The self-sacrificial agape love of God that conquered sin and evil, and death because he lived the perfect life and then gave up his life for us. So verse 15, he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Note well, but that he, that it doesn't say he will tread the winepress. It says he has tread the winepress. And the cross has historically been viewed as the place where God's wrath, where God's justice and God's grace meet. And the result of that was the self-suffering picture of God we see on the cross bleeding for us. The third image we need to pay attention to is the sword. And as we already mentioned, Jesus doesn't show up with a physical sword. He doesn't show up in an army tank. He doesn't show up with machine guns. He doesn't show up with any physical weapon. 
he shows up with a sharp sword that came from his mouth. And this is referred to two times in the text, the sword that comes from his mouth, the sword from, uh, that comes from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. We see that in verse 21 here. From his mouth, not in his hand. We see what does, what does Jesus have in his hand in the book of Revelation? He has the people of God and he has the keys to death in Hades. That's, those are the pictures we see of what Jesus has in his hand. He doesn't come with the sword. His sword actually comes from his mouth. It comes, it's referring to Jesus speaking. Jesus the warrior doesn't need to fight with physical weapons. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter took up a sword in his hand to protect Jesus, and Jesus told him to put the sword away because his kingdom doesn't come by that means, and nothing has changed. Jesus' sword is his word. He fights battles and wars with his word. No no metal instrument is needed. In the beginning, God said with his words, let there, was, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be seas, and there were seas. God said, let there be land that divides the, the waters, and there was land. God said, let there be you know, platypuses and cows and ox and all these other things. God said it, and there was. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, be gone, and the demonic forces that were holding this human being free leave. Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, stand up to a paralyzed man lying, lying on a map, mat, and the man stands up. Jesus is on a storm, in a storm in a boat with his disciples, and he says, whispers the words, be still, and the waters still. Jesus, at the scene of his friend who had died, says, Lazarus, come out, and this dead man gets up and walks out. See, Jesus never shows up with a weapon. Jesus always just shows up with his words. And what we see at the end of Revelation is not is the same consistent picture we've seen about Jesus throughout the scriptures, that it only takes his word. He only needs to speak, and it's all over. He only needs to speak, and it's all over. Or should we say, because we're in Revelation, that we, he only needs to speak, and it all begins. This is the new beginning. Jesus just needs to pull back the curtain and say, enough. That's all that needs to happen. And so we might be wondering, well, what's, why is he taking so long? We've talked about that question a little bit in the, already in the series. And it's the question that the people of God were asking when this book was written. Why is God taking so long? Where is God? If he can just show up and finish it, then why doesn't he do that? And we don't know the complete answer to that, but we know that in his patience, and God's patience in history, the heart behind that is that he wants all people to come to repentance. He wants all people as many people as possible, to come into a relationship with him. And that is the reason why he is being patient. And so as we think about the last book of the Bible, and it being good news, and we think about the end of history, I just want to encourage you and encourage us that the end of history is not some cataclysmic war. The end of history is not this horrific event that we need to be afraid of and figure out which side we're on. Our goal is actually to worship Jesus. Our goal is actually to be like priests, that we intercede for people. We pray for the world. We pray for people. We bring them toward God our Father. And then we represent Jesus to the world. And then we wait. And we faithfully wait. And then we know that when Jesus returns, all he needs to do is speak a word 
and the world as we know it will end. But it's not an ending. It's actually a beginning. In the next couple of weeks, we get to look at the final picture of Revelation and see the beautiful world, the new beginning that we're invited to be a part of. And it's a wonderful picture. And if there's anything that screams good news in the whole New Testament is this picture that we see at the end of the Bible. And I'm excited to to talk about that. But as we move into communion, we want to end this our time this morning with communion. What better way to talk about the images that we see in Revelation 19 than ending with communion? Because Jesus, as we just read and saw, shows up. He doesn't come to fight in the way that we think. The war was already won 2,000 years ago on a cross when Jesus spilt his blood. This is the victory that we celebrate every time we come to the communion table. We celebrate that victory. And so we remember that victory when we take the the bread that was broken, that represents Jesus' body broken for us. When we take the juice that represents the blood that was spilt for us, we remember the victory that Jesus secured 2,000 years ago. And we live not for a future victory, we live from a victory. And so we remind ourselves of that. No matter the chaos that's swirling around in the world around us, we are living from something that's already happened. And so we live confidently in the present, knowing what's coming. And so we remember that as we come to the the table. We also remember that not only did Jesus have a victory that we celebrate, he actually gave us a model to emulate. The people of God were called to participate with Jesus in the transformation of the world, not by force, not by coercion, but in the same way that the Lamb actually brought transformation. And that is being willing to suffer because we're faithful. Willing to suffer because we're we're uncompromising to follow the way of Jesus. Believing that God can rewrite everything for his purposes and bring all things together in the end. This was the encouragement that John gave to the church, the first century church that was figuring out how do we follow Jesus when we're we're under Roman oppression? How do we follow Jesus when we're suffering? John said, even if you die, that's not the end. That's just the first death. And actually, we we can be confident of this because Jesus died and was resurrected, and then he said to, to follow him. And so we can be confident, even as we're facing death, that we don't have to deny Jesus, that we can live faithfully, that we can live from our mandate as priests to bless people. And even if we suffer for following Jesus, we know that we're following the way of Jesus. And so, yes, we come to the communion table, we celebrate, we remember the victory that's won, but we also remind ourselves of how God continues to bring victories today in our lives. It's a commitment to be faithful, to follow the way of Jesus. So as the band leads us in the final song, we got four tables Um, on each corner of the auditorium, we we would invite you in your own time at any point in the song to get up, uh, to go to those tables, and then you'll take the elements on your own. It's an open table. It's an invitation. Um, And so we just invite you to come to the table. If you are in a place in your life where you can profess that Jesus is Lord, that you want to follow him with your life, the table is available to you. Jesus' invitation is always open to you. If you're at home and you're joining us, we encourage you just to go to the kitchen, grab some juice and some food, and you can uh, participate with us during that song. So I invite you to stand now. Let me pray.
Uh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we are not awaiting a cataclysmic, cosmic war. Lord, we thank you that the future is not in question. Lord, we thank you that your victory is our victory. And this was already won 2,000 years ago. As we gather around your communion table this morning, we remind ourselves of that victory. Lord, we're not living, we're living from something that's already happened. We're not waiting to figure out what the results are going to be. We know what's already happened. So, Lord, we thank you for your death, your resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for uh, the life that you have given us both today and forever. Lord, we thank you that when we follow you, we don't have to question or worry about the future. Lord, we thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and that all you need to do is speak. And so, Lord, as we wait for you to come again, as we wait... We remember you, your broken body broken for us, your blood that was spilled for us. We remember this new covenant that you put in place for us, with us. And we choose to live today in light of what you've done and in light of what you have yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen.